بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم in the name of Allah most gracious most merciful choosing faith rediscovering the commonalities between Islam and Christianity by Dr. David J. Lippert Forward I have never written a forward David did not ask me to write a forward in fact I'm not entirely certain what a forward actually is or should be. However, for whatever reason, I felt strongly compelled to say something regarding choosing faith. I do not intend to comment on the author's scholastic approach to his subject, nor do I intend to produce a dissertation critical of the manuscript in the context of similar bodies of work. I do wish to bring to the reader's attention a hint of what is to come, a forewarning may be the most appropriate term, with ideas to foster appreciation of the arguments presented and, most importantly, an understanding of the process. In this book, David courageously takes us through his journey of self-discovery, but with a twist. Unlike similar stories, which begin with ignorance and hypocrisy and ultimately come to a rebirth of sorts, David starts and ends with a daunting fund of knowledge and a strong moral center. Where then is the journey? Where is the conflict that drives an author to write and the reader to read? In this story, you will see anger, oblivion, hope, and dread. You will see confusion. You will see joy. You will see a man who struggles with his spiritual masters, asking questions of himself and others about things that he previously had deemed unquestionable. These are not new questions. History is filled with men and women who have wrestled over a lifetime with similar ideas. What you will see is a very personal account of one man who has chosen from the beginning to walk with God and who is seeking reconciliation and truth. David takes intellectually strong but spiritually painstakingly fragile steps toward his choice. In reading this book, I challenge you to walk with David and through his eyes to see what he sees, see what he believes and wonder. Robert Perversive Author's Preface to the Second Edition I wish I could better express my gratitude for this opportunity to serve God. Allahu Akbar In its first permutation, my book was written to help my family, all of whom are Christians and rather devout, come to terms with the reasons for my own change in doctrine and hopefully to understand its inevitability given what they knew of my character. I've always been intransigent about things that I think are right. My mother sometimes uses other words. After I had written it and shown it to some Muslim friends, they encouraged me to consider that it might have some broader appeal. And so we published it in booklet form for free distribution at their expense, an act whose generosity to me is indescribable. I do not want to pay to publish my own book because even my own vanity only goes so far. I would appreciate any donations made to the Saskatoon Mosque by those of you who have enjoyed reading it. I'm happy to hear that it is helping dialogue between adherents of Islam and Christianity. And I'm even happier that it is helping some people to be more curious about exploring their own faith in the one God who made us all. In his foreword, my friend Rob asks some very good questions about why anyone would read the book. I've been told that every story is about a journey. 
and that good stories are about interesting trips. My book was about my travel from faith to doctrine to faith and back again, but I realized after I read it in its completed form that I didn't actually end it where travelogues are supposed to with a description of me back home again. In this second edition, I have tried to correct that by adding another chapter. I hope that it brings the balance that I wanted to. Sincerely, David Liepert. Table of Contents, Introduction, Chapter 1, First Steps, Chapter 2, My Life as Baptist, Chapter 3, Bringing Light to the Heathen, Chapter 4, The Divinity of Jesus, Chapter 5, The Nature of the Messiah, Chapter 6, The Claims of Jesus, Chapter 7, The Spirit of Wisdom, Chapter 8, Jesus as a Divine Sacrifice, Chapter 9, Jesus' Promise, Chapter 10, The Epistles, Chapter 11, St. Paul, Chapter 12, Why I Am a Muslim. Chapter 13, Why Islam. Chapter 14, End Notes. Except where stated, all Bible quotes are from the New International Version, copyright 1978 by New York International Bible Society, published by Zondervan Bible Publisher, LCCN, number 7869799. I once assisted in the care of a patient in an intensive care unit who eventually died despite our heroic efforts to the contrary. In the end, although the semblance of life was being maintained by machines moving air in and out of the lungs and pumping blood around the body, the patient's heart, brain and lungs were without independent function. With absolutely no chance of recovery, there was no question that we were prolonging death, not life. As well, with all of our mechanisms and machines, we were treating the remains of a human being with unconscionable disrespect. We expressed this to the patient's family and learned that they were members of a Christian self-sect who believed very fervently they had been given the power to demand things of God and the right to expect those demands to be fulfilled. They pray to God and ask that their loved one be returned to life. I recall vividly the confusion, despair, and anger they showed when his, when this didn't happen. They were angry at God. They were angry at us. They were angry at our patient, almost as if they thought that her death was her fault. It took many hours of counseling before they could begin to accept that God had the right to say no. We all pretend that our purpose in the study of religion is to enable us to know, understand, and worship God. Perhaps we should also admit that some of us, perhaps most of us, would like to gain some control in that relationship, either for this life or the next. Religions that claim to grant the ability to influence God are quite popular. Unfortunately, if this is our goal, I don't see how it is possible for us to worship God as supreme and much greater than ourselves. I think that we inevitably create a God in our own image, diminished enough to allow us to pretend that we can predict and manipulate the actions of of our Creator. A prophet named Moses, peace be upon him, once asked God to define God's self so that he could take this name to his people. God's reply was, I am that I am. First tips. Not very long ago, I wanted my faith to remain as it always had been. At the time, I was an evangelical Baptist, 
to me this meant that I believe that Jesus, peace be upon him, was God incarnate, that he had died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. In return for this, and also because of my obedience in baptism and communion, I received the grace of forgiveness as a gift from God. I was also taught that as an additional benefit of my belief, I would gradually become a better person, and more importantly, a better servant for God, as the Holy Spirit changed me from the inside out. I believed with all my heart that this was what we taught by the Bible and that the words of the Bible were literally true, although I understood that it was necessary to consider the context and experiences of the peoples who had been originally addressed. I knew that the Bible was the word of God to his people. As a child, I had been raised by my parents to be a Lutheran. During those early years, I wasn't bothered by questions about my doctrine. Actually, I don't even recall that these basic facts and assumptions all Christians are expected to accept had even been identified to me when I was a child. For me, Christianity was going to church, believing God as revealed by Jesus and the rest of the Bible and trying to do what was right. I lived secure in the knowledge that God would love me no matter what I did, as long as I worshipped him and did my best. Being raised in the family and community in which I was, my religious identity as a Christian was pretty inevitable. Although I knew many people who did not believe in God at all, they really made little sense to me. I didn't understand how someone's belief or disbelief in God could influence God's existence. It seemed to me that either God was real or he wasn't, independent of what anybody believed, since it seemed impossible to me that God would not exist and since I wanted to be on his good side. I looked for information about God from the world around me. I was surrounded by people who claimed to know God, and so I listened to them, followed their teaching, and accepted their guidance. I still have vivid memories of my childhood faith in God. I have seen the word eminence used to describe the awareness of God's presence, and it is generally spoken of as if it is a rare experience that some people try to create within themselves with meditation, drugs, or religious ecstasy. Eminence has been a part of my daily life since long before I knew the word, sometimes in the background as a comforting presence and sometimes otherwise. As a teenager, one evening I was riding my bicycle between two fences along a path when I heard a voice in my ears say, Doc, I did immediately and without thinking. When I stopped to investigate, there was no one visible for hundreds of feet around me, but a fine piano wire had been strung, strung between two fence posts across the path at such a level that it would probably have cut off my head at the speed that I had uh, been riding. Another time, the, time uh, the same voice made me back up in traffic just before a semi-trailer uh, drove over the front of my car. My mother tells me that as a preschool child, I frequently reported visits by something I called the Blue giant, a glowing friendly entity who came by at night to see how I was feeling. I apparently told her that this was my guardian angel. An awareness of God and God's messengers were part of my life before I had any religious knowledge or training. When I was young, I didn't need to understand any of this to accept it. My mother said that I welcomed my blue giant visits and looked forward to them. 
the voice that infrequently commanded me was one that I simply obeyed without thinking, sometimes to my confusion and frustration. Once, when I was about 16 years old, a married woman was obviously making attempt to seduce me when I simply got up and started to walk away, paralyzed from the waist up, wanting to return but completely unable to control my legs. None of these events had a life-shaking impact on me, nor did I feel any need to share them with others. As I grew up, they were easily explained and categorized within Christian doctrine and incorporated into my developing Christianity, subject and subordinate to the religion and theology that I was learning. I first started to develop difficulties with Christianity when I entered adolescence and began to examine the grace of God as it was taught in the church that I attended. I had learned that sins were rebellious thoughts or actions of mine that were not part of God's plan for me, which I should have avoided, but which I instead chose to knowingly and willingly participated in. I had always understood that I was forgiven for all of my sins because of God's goodness, not my own, since I knew just what I was capable of. This was reassuring to me. I also understood that my failure to be perfect was inevitable. My teacher said that I had not been made perfect by God and it was only through the work of God that I could ever become better than I was. In a way, I, I believe that God was responsible for my imperfection, original sin, which I understood to be the capacity for sin that came as a consequence of my free will, rather than some leftover guilt uh, from my ancestors. Uh, was something God had bequeathed to me simply because I had been born human, not as a result of any decision of my own. Since I thought that my faults before God, my judge, were a consequence of my existence and preordained by God, my Creator, it seemed fair to me that God played the necessary part in and was in a way responsible for their correction. I accepted this because I knew how weak-willed I was when it came to choosing between pleasure and righteousness. What was important to me was that I had always been taught that I could unconditionally count on God's forgiveness and help because of my belief and my baptism. This gave me a certain measure of control over the eventual fate of my soul that my religious instructors later called my assurance of salvation. My problem was that very little was taught about repentance and obedience to God by the people I was listening to, although this made my faith a very convenient one to practice. It was uncomfortable for me to read the Gospels because Jesus seemed to stress repentance and obedience very, very strongly. I sometimes found myself in situations where my behavior, as well as that of my friends and religious teachers, stood in stark contrast to the behavior of the men and women of the Bible. I stepped back and watched myself and others and realized that there was little impetus to obey, to obey the moral code expressed in the Bible, even though we all profess to follow its teachings, since we believe that our drive to transgress was inborn, and that our salvation was a result of God's direct intervention in our lives, and because forgiveness was assured and God's punishment made impossible by our faith, most of us generally lived by the prayer, O oh God, make me perfect, but not yet, so that we could continue to live as we wanted rather than as we knew that we should. It seemed to me that few people actually took God's 
very seriously since we uh, could always count on the mercy of God. We all had little cause to do what we knew was right. I frequently present at tearful scenes of repentance, both uh, preceded and followed by joyful and wanton disobedience. I generally try to enjoy this sort of life myself. I unfortunately, whenever I actually sat down and read the Bible, I found Jesus condemning just this sort of hypocrisy. Since what I really wanted from my faith was certainty about my future faith and God's judgment, I felt uncomfortable with apparent uh, contradiction between what the gospel said and what we, the people of the church, practice. I decided to examine the fundamentals of my faith i figured that it uh, would be very simple for me to find out where i had gone wrong and fix it after some study prayer and reflection i decided that i could blame the inconsistencies and problems that i was describing not on myself but on my teacher's departure from pure bible teaching into broader areas of religious philosophy the pastor of the church that i was attending at the time and the people who had taught me my religion were all very well educated because of this the majority of the lessons to which i was exposed came from sources outside the bible even though the bible was supposed to be the basis of all of our beliefs sometimes it seemed that the bible verse that was used as the starting point for a class seemed quite far removed from the conclusion that was finally reached this left me with the uncomfortable feeling that i was relying too heavily on the opinions of others and not enough on the opinion of god i knew that christianity was supposed to be accessible to anyone regardless of education i grew concerned that frequently my pastors and teachers seemed to be showing off their superior intellectual skills and knowledge instead of teaching from the word i left the lutheran church to seek out a group that focused on scripture straight from the bible and who had a healthy distrust for intellectual manipulations i ended up in the baptist church my life as a baptist i was very content with the teachings of the baptists instead of de-emphasizing the new testament writings of paul and the majority of the old testament as my previous pastors had often done the leaders in the baptist said always based their lessons on a wide variety of bible verses i occasionally wished that more of their sermons were based on what jesus himself had said and done rather than the other sources in scripture but since i believe that all the writers were in agreement i had little difficulty with the accepted evangelical baptist doctrine that jesus was god that he had died as a sacrifice for my sins and that i became acceptable to god when i repented and accepted this except for a much less being said by my instructors about the doctrine of the trinity the belief that god manifested to the world in three ways the father the son and the holy spirit i found this to be little different from my previous beliefs the difference that was important to me was the that disobedience to god was not de-emphasized at all which seemed to me much more compatible with what jesus had said in the gospel as a baptist i was expected to succeed in living a righteous life with god's help the law which we had to obey was however quite different from what was often called old testament law the baptists taught that we had to obey god in baptism in professing our faith and in worship day to day righteousness was still a gift from god through the the holy spirit however although i did not earn my salvation by actions good works 
were a sign of God's Spirit working in me and gave further assurance of my forgiveness. I thought that was great, the expectation that I would do good with God's help rather than failed despite divine guidance and support was very reassuring to me. Even better was the knowledge that in simply choosing to do good, I further confirmed God's approval of me. Coincidentally, I had come to a time in my life where I quite simply had fewer opportunities to be tempted and so avoiding sin was less of a strain than it had been previously throughout my childhood and adolescence as a Lutheran and then as a Baptist the central components of the doctrine of Christianity as I had come to understand them were the same I believe that Christian faith was the ability to believe that Jesus was God and had died as a perfect sacrifice for my sins and that by repenting admitting my sinful nature and accepting and accepting that this sacrifice was for me personally i received god's forgiveness this special faith was a special gift from god and a confirmatory sign that gave me assurance of forgiveness for my sins and eternal life of bliss in heaven as well as god's help in obedience in addition it was a special cord that set those of us who believed apart from others who didn't because we knew who god really was we had assurance of power protection and absolution uh, that people with a different religion from us didn't receive no matter how much trust they placed in God. In this way, as I studied Christian doctrine, had become linked to my faith without my noticing. Since my faith in God had become uh, indistinguishable from my acceptance of the doctrine of evangelical Christianity, I became afraid that any uncertainty would be construed as a sign of my faith's weakness. All of us knew that strong faith was good and that weak faith led to failure and hellfire. I therefore eventually became both emotionally and intellectually incapable of closely examining my own beliefs. I was afraid that questioning could easily become a damnation if it went too far. As long as I never questioned, I was certain that God would have to forgive my faults and accept me into heaven when I died. This illusion that I had of my control over my fate on Judgment Day was basically the same whether I lived by Lutheran or Baptist teachings. In the end, I, although I remain convinced that I lived by faith with a capital F as I was commanded by the Bible, the faith that I had was in the saving power of my belief not the justice or mercy of God. Even when I considered the people of the Old Testament who the Bible said had been saved by their faith like Abraham, the other Christian with whom I associated and I generally assumed that this meant they all had an opportunity to acknowledge the correctness of Christian doctrine, the divinity of Jesus and the universal nature of his sacrifice before the time of their own judgment and that it was the acceptance of this sacrifice that had resulted in their forgiveness. In all honesty, even while I was going through my first theological crisis as a Lutheran, I had never thought to question the validity of the things that I had been taught in my Christian studies about God. I knew that Christianity and its various interlocking beliefs, explanations and assumptions had been developed over the centuries by many wise Christians in an ongoing process of revelation, study and prayer. I knew that faith was a gift from God. At the time, I believed, as I have said, that faith was the acceptance of these Christian doctrines. I was convinced that these three statements were not only true, but they were in some fashion interdependent that the human factor introduced with the intellectual development of Christianity was somehow necessary and inevitable and a further sign of God's beneficence and a blessing. I realized one day that I did not fear God. Quite the contrary, I believe that God was my friend in Sunday school for my 
whole life, whether Lutheran or Baptist, I had been taught that God had come to earth as Jesus and had sacrificed himself for me personally so that I would not have to suffer the penalty for my wrong actions. I wasn't even responsible for the really hard work of obedience to God's law because I knew that God would take care of that through the Holy Spirit in his own time. Until then, as long as I meant well and professed the correct creed, I could do pretty much whatever I felt I couldn't help doing. I didn't know what I could possibly be afraid of. I had developed a rationalization where I avoided sin and tried to do what was right, not because I feared God, but because I pitied Jesus. I saw this as proof of the Holy Spirit working within me. I imagined that every wrong thing that I did added to Jesus' suffering on the cross, and I tried to avoid doing ill to limit the pain. Far from fearing God, I thought that I felt sorry for him. I considered myself to be reasonably intelligent. I knew that Solomon, one of the wisest of men, had taught that fear of God was the beginning of wisdom. Although as a Christian, I told myself that I had passed beyond fear into a real knowledge of God. I wanted to be wise because I figured that it would be a good thing to be. Knowing that it had worked for Solomon, I asked for wisdom from God. I actually thought that God would somehow confirm to me that I was right about everything and maybe make me rich as well. Instead, my marriage of nine years fell apart as my wife left me for my first best friend. My work as a physician became a source of anxiety and stress to me when people started to plan on shutting down the hospital at which I practiced, leaving me without a job. All but one friend decided to side with my soon-to-be ex-wife, and a tree fell on my car. The first thing that I learned very quickly in the midst of this was how to laugh at myself and at the arrogance of my assumption that I knew anything about being wise. Strangely, at no time did I doubt that God was working in my life, nor did I feel cursed, just chastened. I had always known Muslims, although I tended to think of them as Mohammedans, and I believe that they thought of their prophet in the same way that I thought of Jesus. I had actually taken some sort of uh, short classes in comparative world religions in the course of my religious instruction and was quite convinced that I knew everything significant about Islam. I believe Muslims were wrong, but otherwise I, but otherwise I really gave their faith little thought. Uh, suddenly I noticed that I was surrounded by Muslims, new friends, colleagues, and uh, respected dementors whose faith I had paid little attention to, all turned out to follow Islam. I was astonished by their goodness, their devotion to their God, and their obedience to the teachings of their book, even though I thought that the book uh, itself was false. I was particularly impressed by the fact that they all prayed five times a day. Bringing Light to the Heathen I decided that if I really cared about them, I would have to change my Muslim friends into Christians. Since I made no distinction between faith and doctrine, I felt that by correcting their system of belief, I would be saving Muslim souls from the eternal torment of hell. I knew that although they were concerned about variations in the Bible's translation, Muslims still revered the Bible and considered it to have been divinely inspired. I knew I, I, I knew as well that Muslims sought to worship and serve the God of Abraham, the same God as Christians and Jews did. I was certain that it would be easy to find in the Bible 
the specific chapters and verses that would show my friends where they had been taught incorrectly and so lead them to true knowledge and faith in Jesus. My task seemed to become even easier to me when I discovered that Jesus was already given the titles of Messiah and Christ in the book of Islam. The Holy Quran, Muslims in my opinion, were all only one step away from Christianity. The first thing I did was read an English translation of the meaning of their book. I still remember the fear that I felt every day when I would sit down prepared for spiritual combat. I expected with every turn of a page that I would read some horrible blasphemy that would test my faith. Instead, I saw worship and respect for God and the teachings of all of the prophets. I had always been taught that Allah was the name of a false god. But only, uh, but one of the first things I learned was that to Muslims, Allah simply meant the Lord and that Muslims gave no more reverence to this name than they did to any other God's other titles such as the most gracious or the most merciful. In fact, I learned that some Muslim scholars had recommended in the past that Allah not be used to refer to God at all in any language but Arabic. This had been done in an attempt to avoid exactly what had happened. Non-Muslims believing that Muslims thought that Allah was God's name I remember thinking that the more I learned, the easier converting Muslims to Christianity seemed to become. The first prayer that I read, instead of being some satanic invocation, said simply, in the name of Allah, most gracious and most merciful, praise be to Allah, the cherisher and sustainer of the world, most gracious, most merciful, master of the day of judgment, thee do we worship and thine aid we seek. Show us the straight path, the way of those on whom thou hast bestowed thy grace, those whose portion is not wrath and who go not astray. Surah uh, chapter 1 verse 1 to 7. I was surprised if I substituted the Lord for Allah as I was supposed to do. This prayer seemed the most Christian of supplication. This first surah even tackled about grace, a concept that I was very familiar with from my Christian education since I was sure that I knew everything that I needed to know on the subject of God's grace, I concluded that Muslims simply didn't understand their own book and just needed to have it explained to them by someone familiar with the Bible like me. My experience every day was the same. Instead of finding the blasphemy that I had expected, I found love, prayer, supplication, yearning, and respect. I had always uh, been taught that Islam was a cruel, fatalistic, and judgmental religion with little love, hope, or forgiveness. Expecting to find proof of this, I, I instead found verses like Surah chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. This is the book. In it is guidance, sure, without doubt, to those who fear Allah, who believe in the unseen, are steadfast in prayer, and spend out of what we have provided for them, and who believe in the revelation sent to thee and sent before thy, thy time, and in their hearts have assurance of the hereafter. They are on true guidance from their Lord, and it is these who will prosper. This verse even talked 
about assurance of the hereafter which confused me because I knew as a Christian that this came only to those with the correct doctrine. When I read Surah 39:53, Say, O my servants who have transgressed against their souls, despair not of the mercy of Allah, for Allah forgives all sins, for he is oft forgiving, most merciful. And Surah 4, chapter 110, If anyone does evil or wrongs him, his own soul, but afterwards seeks Allah's forgiveness, he will find Allah oft forgiving, most merciful. I thought that rather than confirming a rigid or cruel judgment, they seemed to promise the same sort of forgiveness that Christians received, the forgiveness that I knew came only from belief in the doctrines of Christianity. Instead of the fatalism and predestination that I had expected, I found Surah chapter 2 verse 21, O you people, adore your guardian Lord, who created you and those who came before you, that ye may become righteous. And Surah 58 verse 22, Thou wilt not find any people who believe in Allah and the last day loving those who resist Allah and his messenger, even though they were their fathers and their sons or their brothers, kindred, for such he has written faith in their hearts and strengthened them with a spirit from himself. And he will admit them to gardens beneath which rivers flow to dwell therein forever. Allah will be well pleased with them and they with him. They are the party of Allah. Truly, it is the party of Allah that will achieve felicity. When I read them, both of these verses made it seem that in Islam, perfection was not required and that according to the Quran, Muslims became righteous just as I believed that Christian did. As well, they were promised strength and help from God's Spirit, just as I believe Christians were. I remember my feeling of astonishment at how all this faith was being squandered at the feet of, the, of a false God. I became even more convinced that Muslims were somehow a people arrested in the process of becoming Christian, and that their doctrine only needed to be corrected in a few small points with my help. Having resolved to find a way to reform Islam, I embarked upon a careful and organized review of everything that Jesus had taught. I was sure that that this was all that would be necessary to convince a Muslim of the correctness of Christianity, since I was convinced that this was the basis of my own faith. Although in my previous studies of the Bible I had experienced some discomfort, when encountering verses like Mark 6.10, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good but God alone. Or Matthew 5.17, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I had always been able to shrug off these apparent contradictions to my beliefs, 
The first verse I had come to understand was an example of Jesus' teaching that could only be comprehended by someone who already knew that Jesus was God. It was always a pleasure to laugh with other Christians at this example of a divine sense of humor. When reading the second verse, I had been taught to focus on the word fulfill and to believe that Jesus meant that since he had fulfilled the law, none of the rest of us had to. I just ignored the second half of Matthew 5.17 or assumed that it applied to people with different doctrine than any than my own. Another verse that had given me a lot of anxiety when I read it was Matthew 7.21. 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them, plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. But I accepted the assurances of my leaders that this probably referred to the Mormons, and could therefore be ignored safely by the rest of us. I had always believed that, taken as a whole, the Bible supported Christian doctrine fully. I believed that following Christian doctrine was the path to pleasing God. So when I needed to prove this to Muslims, I went to the Bible for support. Because I have written this book, you can probably uh, surmise that my search was not successful in the way that I had expected, I had never studied the Bible in its entirety, seeking to support Christianity as the faith, since I had assumed that this work had been done many times by others. When I finally embarked on my own exhaustive study of the Bible and what it taught, I found some verses I had not read before, and having found them, I rediscovered others that I felt I had never understood uh, properly. As I continued my review, I recalled the many times in Bible study that the leader would say things like, what Jesus really meant when he said this was, and I remembered my own lack of concern at this sort of commonplace reinterpretation. I learned some of the, what it was that the Bible actually said to me, and I learned what I believe are some of the ways that the Bible has been made to serve Christian doctrine instead of itself being served by the church as it should have been.